This podcast is presented by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. Have you ever thought about how much the things around your city cost? I do. A lot. It's one of my weird ticks after years of doing economic justice organizing. You see a bridge, I see a cool 250 million. You see a park, I see, oh, I don't know, 70 million, give or take, depending on how many features. It's expensive. In fact, all of those things usually cost more than any of our cities can pay at once. So, similar to what individuals do when we don't have enough money to cover our expenses, cities often go into debt. Now, as we've seen throughout this season, when debt happens, bad things tend to occur. But surely that couldn't be true for a big city, right? I mean, big cities have taxpayers and businesses and reputations, right? Maurice, you are not saying that cities face some of the same problems with debt as the people we've been talking about all season, are you? Well, yes, yes, I am. Welcome to episode eight of Indebted, a podcast about debt and race in America. I'm your host, Maurice B.P. Weeks, a lifelong economic and racial justice organizer. Each episode, we tackle a different aspect of debt, exploring how it works and why it spells bad news for Black people in our entire economy. Today, we're going to dive into city finances. I promise it won't be boring, though. Let's get into it. City debt isn't exactly like individual debt. Cities can't put it on a credit card or go to a payday lender. So to make up the gap, the city issues municipal bonds. Issuing a municipal bond is basically taking out a loan from a lot of different people at one time. Let's say I'm a city and I need to raise $1,000 for a project. I might advertise to everyone, hey, if you give me $100, I promise I'll pay you back 5 bucks a year and also pay you back your $100 in five years. So let's say I get 10 people to agree to this. Boom, there's my $1,000, and I can start my project. Of course, I'll need to pay out that five bucks a year to each of my investors, usually institutions like pension funds or banks, but that's a small price to pay for my project. In the end, the deal will cost me more than $1,000, but it's spread out over time, and I have the ability to meet an immediate need. On the other side of the coin, if you're one of the investors, you just made some money in a really stable way doing absolutely nothing. Win-win for everyone, right? Well, not exactly. What do Puerto Rico, Chicago, and Detroit all have in common? Each of these municipalities has faced massive problems caused by bonds in the recent past. Let's start in Puerto Rico. The largest U.S. territory is now officially in default. Puerto Rico didn't pay $58 million in debt. This is a bill that we're going to drop tomorrow. We're going to put in a control board that uh, will uh, partner with the island to get the, the, the finances and the budget under control, number one. Puerto Rico's government owes $118 billion in bonds and in unfunded pension liabilities. It has already defaulted on much of it. Things are only going to get worse. Right now, Puerto Rico is spending about a third of its tax revenue on debt payments, far more than anywhere else in America. This bill also includes something else, 
a temporary system of oversight to help implement needed reforms and ensure transparency. That's a CNN news clip, former Wisconsin Congressman Sean Duffy, former Speaker of the House Paul Ryan, and of course, former President Obama on Puerto Rico's debt crisis and the passage of something called the Puerto Rico Oversight Management and Economic Stability Act, or PROMESA. We won't go into the history of Puerto Rico as a U.S. colony, but let's just say it has been on unequal financial footing from the beginning. Due to laws that make it difficult for the island to get affordable goods and a constitution which requires them to pay back bondholders before they use their funds for anything else, Puerto Rico is really at the mercy of debt more than most places. They also are, by law, banned from accessing much of the assistance that other places can. Puerto Rico can't even file for bankruptcy. It's just not allowed. So after a contentious and undemocratic process, the PROMESA board was put in place. The board gave some relief from bondholders, but mostly put into place massive austerity measures. It lowered the minimum wage for some people to $4.25. That's $3 lower than the federal rate, even though the cost of living in Puerto Rico is about 13% higher than the U.S. average. It sold the public power utility company. It called for almost $13 billion in spending cuts. It closed schools, hospitals, cut pensions, cut worker protections, and more. The board is entirely unaccountable. And I don't mean unaccountable in the way that you might think of any old politician. They literally were not elected. They were appointed by the White House, empowered to make these sweeping decisions and impose any austerity measures they choose to solve Puerto Rico's debt crisis. Of course, these solutions hit the poorest local Puerto Ricans worst at the expense of bondholders. Much of the money Puerto Rico is paying back is simply interest. And the austerity worsened with the impact of Hurricane Maria has caused massive emigration from the island. It's also caused corporations and the wealthy to descend on the island and scoop up land that was once owned by black and brown Puerto Ricans. Now to Chicago. The debate over the city of Chicago's plan to close dozens of public schools intensified today. Public school officials cited a billion-dollar deficit and under-enrollment as the driving factors behind the move. The Chicago Public Schools proposal would close 54 underutilized schools, forcing the relocation of approximately 30,000 students. The district says the move would save $560 million over the next decade. Our structural deficit is not the way it was when I got into office. It used to be 660 million, 670 million. It's below 200 million. And I've laid us out on a strategy of getting it structurally balanced where we spend what we take in. Once the you know, education system starts getting impacted, that's when people who otherwise might not pay attention to state government realize you know, how serious the fin- uh, financial position is. few news clips there from the horrible tenure of Mayor Rahm Emanuel. If you don't remember it, 10 years ago, Chicago took the unprecedented step of shuttering more than 50 public schools. Even saying that aloud right now, I can't believe that it happened. It's almost impossible to comprehend what was lost in closing that many schools. Kids and parents' social lives were disrupted, teachers and staff out of work, increased violence by forcing kids to cross neighborhood lines. It may come as no surprise that the schools the plan referred to as 
underutilized and therefore eligible for closure were predominantly in black neighborhoods. And all of this shuttering was due to bad deals the city made, which favored Wall Street over the people of Chicago. Chicago had many bonds that were tied to bank deals called interest rate swaps. It's a predatory Wall Street idea that was popular before the 2008 crash, which was supposed to control the amount of interest a city was paying out, but didn't. These deals are extremely difficult to get out of. Not only do you owe the bondholders their principal and interest, you owe the bank fees. You could even owe money to the bank for an early termination clause. At one point, the city was shipping out millions of dollars to banks per month in these deals alone. This is in addition to all the other bond payments the city had. And on top of all of this, ratings agencies, which are sort of like the credit bureaus of municipalities, threatened to downgrade Chicago's bonds, which made the cost of the city rise even more. Now, lots of groups like Grassroots Collaborative and the Chicago Teachers Union, Action Now, and Refund America proposed different solutions to this problem that would have put the pressure back on to banks. But Rom, being Rom, decided to close 50 schools as part of his, quote, cut and invest strategy. Not sure we ever got to see what the invest side of that strategy was. And finally, my home city, Detroit. And we turn next to a big headline tonight out of America's iconic motor city, Detroit, waving the white flag, the city filing for bankruptcy. But since the 1970s, it's been in decline. And last night, it became the biggest U.S. city so far to file for bankruptcy. So should a bankrupt Detroit sell its treasure trove of art to pay off its debts? That question has put the Detroit Institute of Art and the tens of thousands of artworks within its walls at the center of the city's bankruptcy debate. Leeling Town paid a visit to the iconic museum to see what is at stake. That was the breaking news 10 years ago. In 2013, Detroit very famously became the largest city to file for bankruptcy under the direction of an unelected emergency manager appointed by Republican Governor Rick Snyder. The bankruptcy put everything in the city at risk, from pensions to schools to basic city services in some neighborhoods. And yes, there was even a discussion of selling the absolutely beautiful artwork in the Detroit Institute of Art piece by piece to help pay off bondholders. The wounds of the bankruptcy are still visible and palpable in the city. Saying the words emergency manager makes most residents of this black city incredibly angry. Many can draw a direct line between the bankruptcy and the problems that are still here 10 years later. The narrative of the bankruptcy was that it was the result of, quote, years of mismanagement, a common tag that conservatives slap on black-run cities. The reality, however, could better be described as years of disinvestment. There was very little investment in the city's main industries. That led to population decline. Fewer people means less tax revenue and more strain on services. The city needed more money, so they issued more and more bonds. Over many years, this all added up, creating a cash flow and repayment problem. Adding insult to injury, the Detroit-based Big Three automakers had recently been bailed out by the federal government in 2008 to the tune of $17.5 billion dollars. But when the city of Detroit needed the same kind of support, not a dime. 
The bankruptcy got rid of some debt and reduced other obligations, but it also resulted in years of a strong, austere emergency management for the city. To put the concept of municipal debt in its relation to race into full perspective, I went to one of the people who really introduced me to this topic, who happens to be my former co-founder over at the Action Center on Race and the Economy, or ACRE. I'm Saket Bhatti. I'm the co-executive director of the Action Center on Race and the Economy. Cool. Uh, great to have you on, Sakib. This is weird for many reasons, but one of which is that there was a probably six-year period of time where we talked to each other multiple times every single <laughs> every single day, and now we don't do that as much, but we're talking in this weirdly public format. But it's always great to great to chat with you. And yeah, thanks for agreeing to do this. Of course, happy to be here. Yeah, Sakab, I'm wondering if you could, this is a really funny question to ask you because I've been on so many calls with you when other people have asked us this question, but can you talk a little bit about what Acre is and what Acre does? Of course. Uh, I mean, of course, you know this as one of the co-founders <laughs> of Acre. Uh, we work uh, with local community organizations and unions across the country to help them really understand the role of the finance sector and the tech sector is really corporations more broadly in harming communities of color with an explicit analysis around race and corporate power. One of the ways in which we do that is by writing reports, doing research and writing reports, and really trying to figure out how to make ideas and concepts that are intentionally vague and mysterious accessible. And so we really are, our research is aimed at being something that everyone can understand. Uh, and we really take pride in sort of playing this role of translating complicated things and breaking them down. In fact, our medium page is called Breaking Down the System uh, for, of course, the pun there, we want to break down the system. We also want to break it down so folks understand uh, some of these concepts and how racial capitalism impacts them. Yeah, just shifting into, into plug mode. If you're wondering, you know, Details about how the banking industry screws over renters or uh, how corporations like Vanguard or, uh, or BlackRock or others work. Or we're going to talk about interest rate swaps and different types of bonds. All of those things, I would highly recommend going to the Acre website, acrecampaigns.org, and clicking on the research, and you can find uh, reports that really uh, break those down in super accessible ways. Yeah, so we said earlier in the show, like you were really one of the first people who introduced me uh, to this topic of municipal debt and really thinking about how municipal finance works. Um, and I remember being, uh, an organizer at, uh, in California at ACE and someone saying, yeah, there's this person, Sakib Bhatti, he works at SCIU and he's, there's something about interest rate swaps. I don't know what he does, but I think he can help you with housing organizing. Um, <laughs> and yeah, little did I know that we'd be launching an organization together, uh, you know, a few years after that, um, but yeah, brought you on for your expertise on municipal finance. So I'm wondering if you could just explain, you know, how municipal bonds or like funding our government, our municipal governments works um, and like how, how it works when it works well, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, on the one hand, 
that can be a normal, healthy part of how how a government functions, uh, how a even how a family, you know, how a household functions, how a corporation functions, because there just are certain expenses that make sense to uh, space out over the course of a longer period of time. Like if you're going to buy a house, it doesn't really make sense to like cough up three hundred thousand dollars. I mean, I guess right. Three hundred thousand. I'm being optimistic and in today's day and age about the cost of a house. Right, um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, and so similarly for governments, uh, there's this thing that if you want to actually, like say you want to build schools, well, schools have a long lifespan, right? Like if you want to actually build a school, like you don't want to have to actually pay for the construction all up front because that can cost a lot of money. Uh, and you know that the way you're going to pay this off is actually over you know tax revenues that come in over many years because this is actually going to serve the district for many years and so you borrow uh for long-term borrowing uh for long-term for projects that'll be used long-term right what we generally want to do is match the the term of the borrowing uh you know how long the loan is for for with how long you actually expect uh the thing you're borrowing to pay for to be used so you, you wouldn't want to take out a 30-year bond to pay for you know say iPads, right. <laughs> uh, which a school district actually did, but a 30-year bond to, to pay for new buildings would make sense, uh, or yeah. to pay for, like, you know, expanding your facilities or upgrading your HVAC system, right? Like, that right. could all make sense. Uh, and so the way the bonds work generally is when, uh, so yeah, when cities and states, there are city, state, school districts, government agencies are trying to uh, pay for projects, and for theoretically, for long-term projects, they can take out bonds. Basically, uh, a bond is a loan, but instead of it just being from one, like instead of you going to you know a bank saying, "Hey, give me money," they basically go to a bank or a group of banks and say, "Hey, can you find investors who can lend us the money?" And so they'll take the loan, and basically they can sell off pieces of the loan, so there are lots of different investors that have owning pieces of it, and that's where you can raise a lot of money. A bank itself may not want to issue a three hundred million dollar loan to one, right. you know, one place, but if they can find a bunch of different, bunch of different investors who do, then they can spread out, uh, you know, spread out the, the, the loan and, and cover it. Okay, so I think I, that makes sense for sure. Like you know, if you're if you're building a bridge or something like that that costs millions of dollars, like why would you make the current taxpayers pay for all of it when it's something that's going to benefit the city, municipality, whatever, for the next 30, 40, 50 years? So that that seems to make sense. Um, and then somewhere in all of this, we get to the point where these and other municipal finance instruments start really harming black and brown communities. I'm wondering if you could talk about how that happens, because it seems that this would be a totally reasonable thing for municipalities to do. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of this, of course, uh, you can trace back to white flight, right? What you basically have is white folks, uh, you know, leaving cities, um, moving to the suburbs, um, and basically not contributing to the tax bases of, you know, major of major cities, and those cities, a city like Detroit, that saw 60% of its population leave, well, the city is still just as big as it was when it was fully populated, but now there's only 40% of the people there to support services in this large, spread-out city. And so what we started happening, what we started seeing is 
uh, in a lot of cities across the country, this hollowing out of the tax base uh, and poor black and brown folks being the ones who actually still live in the city, being forced to, you know, uh, pick up the band there, right? And so what, you know, banks, of course, saw an opportunity here, which is, okay, on the one hand, uh, you know, banks, credit rating agencies, the entire sort of all of Wall Street, on the one hand, they actually slapped, uh, you know, cities with low credit ratings. The credit rating is similar to a credit score, right? We have credit scores on a scale of like, you know, like, uh, you know, it was, we have credit scores and there's, you know, the higher credit score, the better interest rates you get. Similarly, city, states, school districts, they have credit ratings, uh, which is just you know, their version of a credit score. Uh, and so the truth is that most city, like more than half of the states, uh, or roughly half the states right now, still actually guarantee, you know, that their city, the state, that, that their cities will pay all of their debt, that they actually mm-hmm. can't, def- they can't file bankruptcy, they can't default. States across the country are legally not allowed to actually, uh, you know, go, go bankrupt. And so the truth is that there's actually no risk whatsoever to the bondholders of those places uh, of non-payment. And yet, and yet, uh, cities and states get hit with like really low credit scores, right? Low credit ratings uh, that drive up the cost of the, the, the cost of borrowing. And that in particular, we've seen there's a study uh, that actually Acre put out um, a few, right as we were launching Acre, actually, uh, you know, a few years ago, that looks at the fact that cities with larger, um, you know, like predominantly black and brown cities are more likely to get hit with lower credit ratings, even when you control for other factors. The other thing, of course, is that in much the same way the banks decided to take, you know, what was, you know, with homeowners, they took what was a conventional 30-year mortgage, plain vanilla product, and decided they could make more money if they made it a little bit riskier and advertised it as, you know, opened up more access. It is a similar thing with cities and states, where they basically uh, decided that plain vanilla municipal finance didn't make enough money. And so they introduced all sorts of, you know, complicated deals. They called it financial engineering, financial innovation, uh, in an area that really didn't need engineering or innovation. It was actually working pretty well, right. except that it didn't make that much money for Wall Street. <laughs> uh, right, right. And so they introduced all sorts of risky, complex products. Uh, and then on the one hand, they would sell you a risky product, and they're more likely to sell predominantly black and brown cities risky products by saying, hey, look, your credit rating is low. This will help you out. And then they would sell you additional products to mitigate that risk. Right. Um, so this is where interest rate swaps come in. And I'm yeah. I'm wondering if you can describe what what's the simplest way to define an interest rate swap? So um, when you borrow, you can take out a fixed rate or an adjustable rate, right? Similar to, you know, similar to the deal with mortgages, right? Right. Uh, and of course, if you're taking an adjustable rate or as they call it, an in municipal finance variable rate, you could get a lower rate up front, but there's always the risk that rates could shoot up later on. And so an interest rate swap was sold essentially as an insurance policy to taxpayers, to city, state, school districts, saying, well, if interest rates go up, you're protected. Right. Um, so but, if you have a variable rate, and let's say the rate is 3% at one, when you took it out, but then the rates go up to 10%, your interest rate swap deal could be, hey, 
like we'll just lock you in at five percent, like indefinitely, mm-hmm. and that's how much you pay. That exactly. seems like a seems like a good idea. What could possibly be wrong with that, Sakib? I mean, the way that they structured this, it was sold as an insurance policy, but it was actually just a bet on interest rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in two thousand eight, when the banks crashed the economy, uh, we had in, in, like the Federal Reserve as part of the bank bailout slash rates to near zero, and that meant that this bet went sideways for cities and states because of the bank's own actions. Because right. the banks crashed the economy, suddenly they were raking in millions of dollars a year from cities and states. Uh, tens of, I mean, you know, city of Chicago was paying about 70 million a year. These numbers were just huge uh, for how much folks were, uh, for folks were having to pay as a direct result of banks crashing the economy. And here's the kicker. They had, uh, you couldn't get out of the deals because there were these pre-penalty payments that were put in there saying that basically if you wanted to get out, you had to pay all of the future, the the net present value of all future payments on the deal right now. Oh my God. Oh my God. Uh, And not only was it that, um, that, that wasn't only if you wanted to get out of the deal, there were also several termination triggers that were built in. Uh, and, you know, for example, one of the triggers was that the bank that you um, do the deal with goes under. And so in an ironic twist, when Lehman Brothers crashed, cities and states across the country owed Lehman Brothers money because <laughs> Lehman Brothers went under. Wow. Okay. Well, that is... Uh... I would say probably infuriating for most people who are hearing it for the first time. I am hearing it for maybe the hundredth time and it's still infuriating to me. Hi, this is Caden, the publisher of Convergence Magazine. There are a lot of places that you can put your hard-earned money in support of our movements, but if you're enjoying this show, I hope you'll consider subscribing to Convergence on Patreon. We're a small independent operation and rely heavily on our readers and listeners like you to support our work. You can join us at patreon.com slash convergence mag. Subscriptions are pay what you can, but at 10 bucks a month, you'll get goodies as well as knowing you're helping to build a better media system, one that supports people's movements and fights fascism. And if you can't afford it right now, don't worry. All our shows will be free for you to enjoy. You can also help by leaving us a positive review or sharing this episode with a comrade. Thank you so much for listening. This is such a hidden piece of the economy and i i wonder why you think that is i mean like when i learned about how how governments funded themselves when i was in school it was like okay like you get a tax bill and everyone pays their taxes and then your city uses that money to do everything um and then once you peel back the layer it's extremely complicated um what like why is it hidden like this? Why aren't why aren't why isn't this a more prominent point of people's knowledge or or the public discourse? I mean, it's intentionally obscured uh, by the industry, by government officials who don't want to shine a light on this little area, right? I mean, the truth is the reason why our system is so broken is that we're not just borrowing to pay long term expenses; we're borrowing in many cases because we're not raising enough money. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to raise taxes, to raise progressive taxes in particular, to make the wealthy 
and major corporations pay their fair share. And instead of making them pay their fair share, we're borrowing the money from them instead. Because of course, the investors, the lenders in municipal, bond, in municipal finance are actually typically wealthy individuals uh, because who, who invest in municipal, municipal bonds as a tax shelter. And so instead of making them pay their fair share of taxes, pay what they owe in taxes, we're instead borrowing that money from them instead and paying them back with interest. And they basically rig the system so that it benefits them. And they try to hide behind uh, the idea that this is too complex. Mm-hmm. They purposely try to say, this is, you know, like you mere peons can't understand what's going on with this. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, you know, don't you know, like there's broader market forces at work. But of course, what they're hiding is that they are controlling the market. They are making the market. They're manipulating the market. Everything that they sort of say, well, this is just the market. Every piece of that is rigged by right. Wall Street and wealthy folks. Um, and one big issues that we see is that very often the finance staff at cities, states and government agencies are essentially held captive by these folks, right? They actually often rely on, like their biggest, in many cases, their their main advisors are actually the banks themselves who are actually making money off of them. Yeah, Um, yeah. Even though officially, legally, those banks are not required to put the interest of taxpayers first. Yeah, yeah. I remember working on, on this at some point and realizing that not only do they rely on on these institutions, but a lot of the folks who are in decision making uh, uh, or like analytic positions within our cities come from these very institutions. So cities will often be like, "Well, of course you get this job as finance manager. You come from Bank of America or J.P. Morgan. Mm-hmm. Like that's a plus on your on your resume." So I'm sure that adds to it as well. Yeah, either you come from there or you're looking for a job there. Right, it's a huge revolving door. That so either you, if you're you know high enough in the city, you know maybe they brought you on as someone who's been executive at a bank, and if you're low enough down the totem pole, you're looking for a job where you can make a lot more money uh, working for the firms themselves. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so we've laid out something that. I imagine, at least at some level, is 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 uh, an issue in most municipalities. And I'm wondering, like, you know, for, for folks listening, like, let's say there's someone who's listening in Detroit or Dallas or something like that, and they um, see the racial inequality in their city and they want to basically figure out what they can do to change it. What How does municipal finance play in it? Like what? What is the solution that they should be fighting for? You mentioned raising taxes. Is that the fix? Just raising taxes so much that we don't need this anymore? I mean, the two biggest things I would say are, yeah, we need much more progressive taxes. Like, it's not just raising taxes; it's raising taxes on the wealthy and the corporations who don't pay what they owe. Right. Uh, in most cases, the truth is that you know, poor folks, uh, black and brown folks, are actually paying more than their fair share. Right. Uh, but it's you know wealthy the wealthy who are getting a free pass. And so it is raising ta- raising progressive taxes. You know, the other piece of it is really building out our own public infrastructure, our own public finance infrastructure, whether it's through public banks, so that we can, you know, cities can self-underwrite their own bonds without having to go to the private markets, uh, whether it's pushing for the Federal Reserve to provide interest-free loans 
to all city, state, school districts across the country. You know, they provide very low interest rate loans to banks, but they don't pass that on to, to taxpayers. And they could. They actually yeah. could do that, but they choose not to. And so, you know, we need to figure out how we're actually cutting Wall Street out. But in the meantime, until we get there, we also need to be holding campaigns to hold banks and investors accountable for the predatory deals they're selling us. That means when there is wrongdoing, when we know that they've broken the law, we need to actually sue them and take them to trial, force them to actually turn over all the different ways uh, in which you know they rig the system uh, and force them to return what they owe. Right now, the pattern is that when banks steal from taxpayers, and I use the word steal deliberately, uh, they end up settling for pennies on the dollar, which means that they actually get to keep most of what they stole. Right. They only pay it back a small portion of what they took. So it's actually just the cost of doing business. They make money by stealing and paying a small portion for back in a settlement. But what if cities across the country said, we're not settling with you, we're going to take you to trial and make you pay what you owe. In some cases where there's anti, you know, anti-trust uh, laws that are at play, which often is the case actually with banks because there's only, you know, there's only a few of them and they're sort of talking to each other all the time and colluding. Mm-hmm. You can even get triple damages or travel damages, as they call it, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. Um, instead of getting paid five cents on the dollar, get paid, you know, three dollars on the dollar. Yeah, and that's yeah. a real deterrent. Uh, but of course, the other piece is sometimes a lot of what banks are doing is predatory, but it's not illegal. And in those cases, we still need to really push our public officials to put pressure on these banks, right? Refuse to do business with banks that won't deal fairly with us, develop you know, alternatives uh, like public banks, uh, and you know, really push for plain vanilla municipal finance. These more complicated deals, the more complicated the deal, the more ways there are for banks to rip us off. Yeah, uh, we need to go back to traditional plain vanilla municipal finance. Right, right. It wasn't broke, so why did we try to fix it and make it way more complicated yeah. in the process? I mean, to be fair, as with everything else in you know, racial capitalism, it was broke. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, it right. was always broke. I mean, it was never working for black and brown folks, but it wasn't broke in the ways that they tried to solve for by creating all sorts of exotic products. Right. Okay, so... Modern times, let's fast forward through history to right now. So cities just got a huge influx of cash, actually, from federal programs. And some cities even are saying that they have surpluses, um, which seems really, really great. Does that change the outlook of what municipal finance is going to look like over the next like few years? Like, Does that mean folks will be borrowing less or is the industry just like so powerful that kind of no matter what cash comes or goes from the federal government, it's going to keep cranking along? I mean, most places will borrow. And I mean, truthfully, like getting a huge influx of cash doesn't mean even like, like I think a great way to use the new cash that's coming in is to start investments in some long-term capital projects that would really improve our communities. And for that, even though a lot of money's come in, there's so much need in our communities that that's not nearly enough. It's enough for down payment, right? right? And so that's where like long-term responsible borrowing could still make sense. 
Uh, what I think we're likely to see, because this is just what happens when, you know, in the way that our system works, is that we'll, you know, have corporations, privatizers, you know, find ways to like take, eat, eat away at this money. Uh, and in the end, we're still having to, you know, the money all disappears pretty quickly. And we're in no better a place where we haven't made long-term infrastructure investments. And we're still having to borrow to fill gaps. Um, or, you know, like maybe what we do is we take the money that comes in and give people tax breaks. I mean, they're just right. all sorts of like bad ways to spend this money. Uh, in fact, you know, as you know, us led Acre, when we launched this campaign that was called No Cops, No Banks, which is that as federal money comes down, we need to ensure that it's going towards actually improving communities, making, keeping black and brown communities, underinvested communities safe, making them healthy, letting them thrive, instead of just going towards increasing money for policing or paying debt to Wall Street. And of course, that's exactly how a large portion of the money has been spent is increased yeah. money towards policing or making payments to you know on, on, on predatory debt deals. Oh, lots of lots of uh, areas to organize and lots of ways to go um, on this to fight for cities that uh, are world class to fight for our world class cities to <laughs> use another acre report title. I should say I'll I'll tell all of the listeners we'll link to some of the reports in the show notes. Um, and one of Sakib's many skills is uh, credit ratings for cities, which I believe that report was called Outlook Negative. Is that right? Is that that one? It was, although I did not name that one. But yes. Oh, really? Oh, wow. But the other, the you know, there's several others. One is a world-class city that really is a... Um, you know, talks about Chicago in particular, but how how to build a city that has a financial system that actually works for Black and Brown folks in the in the whole city. So we'll we'll link to a couple of those in the in the show notes. Our, our two thousand our twenty twenty three update to that first we get the money, uh, oh which is my. the the twenty twenty three version of uh, financial plan for Chicago world class so city twenty nineteen. So 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 good. Okay, this has been so informative. I'm wondering if, uh, you know, I'm sure that we have some listeners here who are like, I want to actually look this up. Like, I don't want this to be obscure anymore. Um, how easy is it to do that? Like, where should people where should people go? Um, like, can they just, like, get online and find something? Or should they call Acre and just have them look it up? So, you know, cities, states, school districts, they put out annual financial reports um, that will list a lot of the information if you know what to look for. And that's the key issue, is that a lot of the issues that we point to, a lot of what's problematic about municipal finance deals is actually the way it's supposed to work. Yeah. Right? Like, it's the, the, the way it's supposed to work is rigged from the get-go. And so, uh, you know, we have a couple of reports that you can find on the ACRE website. One is from, I believe, 2014 called Dirty Deals that sort of talks about, uh, you know, here's a framework for understanding what kinds of debt deals are bad and problematic. We have uh, a whole series from Puerto Rico. Broken Promises is the sort of the capstone report on that. But the individual reports, there were six or seven of them, mm-hmm. talk about different types of deals that are problematic uh, that Puerto Rico got into, which 
you know, it's basically, that's a, in some ways a good comprehensive summary because all the bad stuff that's out there turns out banks like peddled all of that to Puerto Rico because of the situation that Puerto Rico was in and they took advantage of it. Yeah. Um, so you, you can look there. We have a report by Chicago called Our Kind of Town. We have a report turned around that looks at state level deals. Uh, so yeah, so we have, and then the other one that I really do want to name is police brutality bonds, mm-hmm. uh, which of course I know you worked a lot on um, the you know, the campaign around that, which really is about uh, the fact that municipal bonds are often what's used to pay police brutality settlements, and when that happens, uh, you have a dollar roughly of profit for investors and banks for every dollar that the family of the victim gets, uh, and that can often itself lead to more cuts because you have to cut services in order to pay for the profit. Uh, but so yes, yeah, so I would say on our website, if you go to the research section, our various reports will give a framework for how to actually think about debt deals. Uh, we have some webinars uh, as well and resources uh, on our website. Uh, but yeah, the annual financial reports, the official statements of bonds, which you can get off this website, emma.msrb.org, Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board, MSRB. You can get the information from there, but it's just knowing what to look for. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll link to Emma in the show notes as well, just in case anyone wants to poke around. If you do, please uh, let us know because we'll send you a a, a nerdy uh, award for really being one of our nerdiest listeners. The last thing I want to ask you, Sakib, is um, you know we talked about really three key places: um, Detroit. Puerto Rico, and Chicago. And it, of course, strikes me that all of those places are, you know, if not majority people of color, really coded as, uh, you know, majority people of color. Detroit's a black city. Chicago's, like, very black and brown city. Puerto Rico, of course, is a colony. And I'm just wondering, like, is this currently a problem that exists in only those types of places, or are those types of places kind of the canary in the coal mine for the rest of the country? I mean, the truth is municipal finance, like I said, the rules of municipal finance are rigged against taxpayers. And so we see problematic deals everywhere, uh, not just in black and brown cities, but you know, cities across the board, states, school districts. But what is what is true is that there's more opportunity to sell predatory deals, more complex deals that are problematic, charge higher interest rates to places that are desperate because yeah. they have major financial issues, major financial uh, you know, shortfalls, re- revenue shortfalls. And primarily black and brown communities tend to fall into that category because of the history of, dis- you know, of, right. uh, of white flight and dis- disinvestment in those cities. And so for that reason, um, we see a lot of these deals showing up much more in those types of places. The other thing is that there's also that when it's those places, when it's black and brown places that end up having debt crises, the solution that gets proposed is much more likely to be, you know, take away local democracy, whether it's putting an emergency right. manager in place in Detroit putting a fiscal control board in place in Puerto Rico. In Illinois, they tried to change the law to allow a state takeover of Chicago schools. In Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, the state of Pennsylvania actually took over 
you know, yeah. uh, Philly yeah. schools. So what we see is that the solution, when it's black and brown communities that are affected, folks tend to pathologize and say, well, this is because black and brown folks are responsible and we can't trust them to handle their money. And so let's take it over. Um, and that's, I think, a piece that is, uh, yeah, just, we can't ignore that piece. Yeah. Well, um, thank you so much for walking us through all of this in a, in a super, uh, you know, simple and con- and concise way. And yeah, and just illuminating that, you know, this is really intentionally made this obscure and it's something that we can, that we can change as well. Um, so yeah, I pr- always appreciate chatting with you. Likewise. And yeah, I really appreciate you coming on. Be glad to be here. I love Socket for so many reasons, but one is the ability to make this issue so accessible. I mean, really, it's not a complicated thing. Over and over, when we've dealt with problems of debt, we've found the solution to be just give people what they need. It's an overall value change, but one that we have to believe is possible. We can guarantee that we have functioning schools and bridges and everything else that bonds and tax dollars pay for. It may mean that we can't give endless money to billionaires and big corporations, but hey, it's definitely possible. It means doing things in a responsible and a racially just way. There's a whole crew of activists and organizers in Puerto Rico, Chicago, and Detroit. We're going to continue to push for this, and I hope that you'll push alongside us. Today, I authorize the emergency manager for the city of Detroit to seek federal bankruptcy protection. Why did I do this? What's the rationale and what's the impact for both the city of Detroit and the state of Michigan? From a financial point of view, let me be blunt. Detroit's broke. My thanks again to Sakib Bhatti for joining me this episode. Indebted is produced and published by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. You can help support this show and others like it by becoming a Patreon member of Convergence for as low as $2 per month at patreon.com slash convergencemag. You'll find a direct link in the show notes. Folks, next week is the last show of this first season of Indebted. I really hope you've enjoyed listening to this first set of episodes as much as I've enjoyed recording them. It would help us out if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and rate the show. And if you have any ideas about the future of the show or any comments, you can email me directly at indebted at mauricebpweeks.com. For our season finale next week, we have a very special guest. If you're going to hand me a magic wand, first place I'm going to wave it is I'm going to cancel all the student loan debt. Can't wait. This show is produced by Josh Elstro. It's written and hosted by me, Maurice BP Weeks. Until next time, let's keep fighting for the world we all deserve. (laughs) 